0: Hello and welcome to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups. In this episode, we have a conversation around toxic shame. We talk about what toxic shame is, how it shows up in our lives, and limits our true potential. And as we build awareness around it, we can learn how to loosen its power over our hearts and minds. So without further ado, here is episode nine, Toxic Shame. So good to be sitting um, with you guys again, Scott and Sarah, and I'm very excited um, to talk about this specific topic. topic on this episode because I think it's so, so important. It's also really misunderstood oftentimes. And I know that it's a, uh, a building block and something that you guys really focus on um, here at Restore. And this episode is about toxic shame. And so maybe the best way to get started is to create um, a little bit of definition, a little bit of context around what toxic shame is for anybody that's not even really familiar um, with the term. So Scott, you want to take um, the first stab at toxic shame.
1: Yeah, I was first introduced to it through mm-hmm. Bradshaw's book, Healing of Shame, It Binds You. And um, I love how he said, when shame becomes an identity, mm. it, it becomes toxic. It's not that I made a mistake. It's that I am a mistake. And what I always say, what, what I learned from toxic shame that he's presenting is that it's definitive. Mm. It's, this is an absolute. You are not. A good person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that you do bad things, it's that you're a bad person. It's mm-hmm. like, and so um, I, I think that's what I've come to see. And, and what, real quickly, the, what it introduced me to was that he says that from toxic shame, we develop a false self. And then he said the false self was a fertile soil for all attachments and addictions. And so, the, and then when we move into that, that creates more shame and that deepens the false self, and so the toxic shame, he said, is at the root. Mm.
0: That's like the root of the tree, and all these branches kind of, you know, you can focus on the branches and the leaves of of everything that you're seeing, but at the root, it all comes back to toxic shame.
1: Right, and personally, I mean, as I've looked at my life, at 66 years of age, I realize that has been the most detrimental influence on my life, Mm. has been my struggle with toxic shame. It has been there, looking back for my whole life. It's the first memory Mm. I have of my life, is feeling
0: shame. Wow.
2: Wow. Yes. Uh, Bradshaw's work on toxic shame, I think is definitive for anybody who wants to understand it. Mm. I think you have, it's a, his book, Healing the Shame that Binds You is a tough read. Mm. So I caution anyone, you sort of have to be ready for it before you read it.
0: Yeah.
2: But for me, it was an eye opener. His definition of toxic shame, I think is really uh, groundbreaking, which is being exposed before you're ready for that exposure. Mm. So if you think about that, as a, especially as a kid, you're, that means you're exposed to things that your child brain can't comprehend. Mm. And most of the time that toxic shame sets in because there's nobody to come alongside you and say, what you were just exposed to is this, it means this. Wow. But if you think about the wounds of childhood, um, it can be as basic as your parent yelling at you in public, for mm. example. Uh, that feeling of humiliation for a child in front of a bunch of people, mm. uh, when you walk away from that, as a, as a kid, you you feel the sting of that, but there's mm. nobody, but, uh, but you're looking at your parent, and they thought that was okay. They mm. did it, so mm. they yelled at you. I, I don't know why, but I still have such empathy if I see a parent if I see kids or something out in public and the and the parents really laying into the kid and Mm. I'm like, Oh, that like hurts me. I'm like, Oh, that's, that is shame. Uh, when your friends humiliate you at school, when you're bullied, um, you know, you don't, you don't know what to do with Mm. that. Um, as you want to go home, a lot of times what happens is then you want to go home. If you had a safe space at home, you go home and talk about it. Mm. But a lot of times you don't have any place to go talk about it. So you take that home and then maybe there's stuff that's happening at home. Maybe you're, parents get divorced when you're younger, Mm -hmm. you don't know how to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there's physical abuse, maybe there's sexual abuse. Um, I think, you know, especially for children being exposed to things that are sexual at a very young age that they don't understand at all Mm -hmm. and no one's talking to them about it. And now Mm -hmm. this, in this day and age when you've got the internet and everything's at your fingertips. I think kids can be exposed to a lot of things they don't understand mm-hmm. and have no one to explain it to them. So I think Bradshaw's definition is the best one, which is you're just being given adult issues and adult problems mm-hmm. and uh, adult emotional uh, baggage that they don't, you know, maybe your parents don't know what to do with their baggage right. and now they're dumping it on you. Right. And as a kid, you're trying to process, but essentially the message that you get is the same, which is... I am not safe. Mm. I am not safe and I am not totally lovable. Mm. Not even sure anyone really wants me here. Mm. And then you start trying to figure out how, okay, well, if that's true, then how do I survive? Mm. How do I make it? Uh, how do I get my emotional needs met? How do I fly under the radar so that nobody notices right. me? Um, so there. I. But then it can show up too, even if you make it through, if you have a relatively normal home, you can you can find yourself being exposed to toxic shame in your adolescence, in your adult life, um, where you you just, you know, again, things like humiliation um, and um, feeling um, unworthy or uh, degraded or less than human. Those are all moments in which toxic shame sets in. And I think, unfortunately, the aftermath of toxic shame is that it plants a seed of doubt in your head Mm. of your worthiness, of Mm. who you are. It just, unfortunately, it's the seed of doubt that almost never goes away. It's like what Scott was saying. Like, he struggled with his whole adult life. I have too. Mm. I think a lot of people have. It's that message that you go back to, whatever it is, Mm. in that moment where you get triggered or that moment of uh, difficulty and struggle, um, you have a, a hard day and your brain immediately goes back to whatever that seed of doubt is. Mm. Like I I knew I was totally screwed up. I wow. knew I couldn't do this. I know I'm totally irresponsible. Like I know I'm not lovable. Like I am never going to make this happen. You know, I'm 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 totally incapable. Whatever it is that's um was there from the beginning.
0: Wow. So. Yeah, let's stick on that for a second I think that's really important that when we feel triggered, when we have these things that happen that are really just a lot of times it's not a big deal. And from an outsider's perspective, I think that's where also being in a healing community is so helpful where someone's like, oh, like, you know, you're you're doing you're, you know, you're moving into shame. Let me bring you back out. Right. Because it's so much easier to see when someone else moves into it. Then, but those triggers, when it hits us and we fail, we don't make the grade or a relationship falls apart. It's like, well, of course, of course it fell apart because I'm not lovable. Like, it's, it's just confirming that, that wound in that story.
1: The way that I like to, or I've come to understand it in my own life, is it's a paradigm. Mm. It's a, and it's, it's a dark paradigm. Mm. So, if you consider you know, paradigm as a lens in which I'm seeing everything through, I'm seeing everything through that lens of shame. Wow. Everything. So, it may seem like a small thing to somebody else. But the one I'm seeing, it's just magnifying what I'm already believing, Mm. which is that I'm not good enough. Mm. And we've talked about this before, but I mean, I've been around some of the most successful people in our society. I mean, multimillionaires, intelligent, gifted, and they struggle deeply with toxic shame. Mm. That... They're just not good enough. Mm. And a lot of times, and it is used in our society to motivate. Right. You know, I mean, I came out of that era where it was huge. And so a lot of people are driven. What I say, I've I've been more motivated by fear Mm. of being exposed than I have been by feelings of affirmation and confidence and, Mm. and love. And so that's why I think for transformation to be complete that dark lens of shame, that toxic shame has, has got to be transformed. And that takes a lot of work.
2: Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think you first have to be aware of it because I think that is the hard part is when you've grown up in an environment of toxic shame, you're right. not even aware of it. Yeah, um, This is the only experience that you really know. Mm. And you don't realize you're looking at life through that lens. You're not. And so I think the biggest biggest switch to turn is to become aware when, the, when you become triggered, when something happens. And again, I, I always, and I say this a lot, but a lot of grace and mercy to anyone who's struggling with that because right. whatever that is, it points to some very deep wounding. Yeah. We don't come to believe those messages really unless they are reinforced right. time and time again. Right. And so when you become aware of the message, then you become aware of the wound that's when the hard work starts but right. you have to you have to start consciously going oh I am I am aware that ten times a day I think you're you're not gonna make it mm. like or you're you're not capable or you're not lovable or of course everyone's gonna walk out on you mm. that's the way this is gonna go um, and you, then once you become aware I think that's a huge first step yes is to just know they're happening mm almost like they say in meditation you just be just watch them pass by and go yeah. huh well that's interesting yeah <laughs> that this situation triggered that thought yeah. in me um for me there's a I mean, my core, core, core issue for a lot of people, I'm not alone in this, is abandonment. Mm. So as soon as something negative happens in my life, the immediate thought is, well, that's it, I'm on my own. Mm. Like and and I've become aware of it over the years. But to Scott's point, it's always going I think if it's deeply, if you're deeply wounded in that area, you're going to probably always struggle Mm. with it. On your worst days, you're probably still gonna go there. Yeah. But to learn to say, Is that reality? Mm. And that takes a while because it feels like reality. It feels like that's true Um, for a long time until you start to do this kind of work it out in a sense, you know, do your emotional work, figure out where that came from and then start telling yourself, no, that's not reality. That's just the way I was. That was just the message I was given. And unfortunately, that's the way now Mm. in which I that's my default mode mm. through which I will see the world, but it's not necessarily the reality wow. of my
0: world. But that first step awareness is huge.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. And I think that we just saw with the Olympics, you know, some mm-hmm. athletes came out openly and stepped away from competition because of mental health struggles. Right. right. And these used to be things where you just never talked about because oh, it's yeah. so shameful. Yes. It's like we have this, you know, mindset that any kind of mental struggle is a weakness Mm. to be, you know. And so, you know, I I just think that what Thompson talks about in A Soul of Shame is that shame disintegrates. We we cease to expand. We we quit expanding and moving into all that we were created to be. Mm. And he believes that that's the work. Of there's an enemy, then that's that's their main weapon. That's why I can see where um, Gerald May can say that, that grace is the most powerful force in the universe because what I've always shown our participants and myself is that there's only one force that's strong enough to cut through all those layers to the core issue, which is a toxic shame, mm. and expose it and heal it, and that is grace. And that's why I think spirituality is the only remedy Yes. for toxic shame, because it's just, it's the only answer. Mm. And so, and I, I want to say again, that social media just exasperates the shame message. And what I like that Thompson talks about, he says that, that when shame has its power, it disintegrates us. But grace, when it's exposed and it heals it's integrated. Mm. We become whole. Mm. I like to use the word harmony—spirit, mind, and body—all working together. Um, and that really does explain to me the spiritual journey—to mm. do that inner work—and mm. it's, and it's just such freedom, you know. And going back to what uh, Bradshaw says, the only ant- we're terrified, petrified, he says, of exposure. Mm. Yet he says exposure is the only antidote mm. to toxic shame.
0: That's beautiful. And you guys were uh, mentioning that this can show up in, in two different ways and we'll hit perfectionism first. But, um, you know, the pendulum can swing on how you deal with this shame. And one side is perfectionism, and the other side is like the victim mentality where it's like I give up, you know, I'm worthless. The other one says, no, I'm going to perform. I'm going to go out and do it, and that's gonna, what's going to help me and in, in deal with this toxic shame so you guys want to start with perfectionism or the victim mentality
2: i'm an expert on yeah. perfectionism <laughs> <laughs> but i think the example of the olympics is a perfect example mm. because not not to disparage competitive athletics right. because that's the things that some of these, some of these people do is amazing but if you were to hold up sort of a great example of what it means to be greater than human it's an olympic athlete right. i mean they essentially that's the thrill of the olympics right mm-hmm. you these are people doing superhuman things that we're amazed at and yet beneath that i thought it was very touching that simone biles mm-hmm. said this is the first time i've ever felt i was more than my being an athlete yeah like the compassion that she was shown for her mental health struggles that's saying something. I mean, I think that points to well, what happens when you become? You're not a person anymore. Mm. You've become an identity of performance, mm. and uh, so I hold that up as as a as a great example. And if you think, I think Bradshaw's idea of lesser than human, greater than human. If you think of the like a figure eight, and in the middle of the figure eight where it where it meets is human, mm. is being hu- fully human. Mm meaning I am neither worthless nor perfect. Mm. I am just human. Mm. And then you kind of picture the loops as the two cycles of the false self, where you can cycle out into the false self because you're not comfortable with being human or you feel toxic shame at your core of being human, Mm. of your humanity. You'll spiral out into well, then I will, I will not be human. I will be greater than human. Mm-hmm. I will be perfect. I will, you will not crack this outer shell of me, and I will go through life trying not to make a mistake. Right. And I will try, and I will tell you that the lie of the perfectionist, because I am a recovering perfectionist, is you can pull it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you actually believe I can, if I stay sharp enough, mm-hmm. get through life without making any major mistakes. Wow. It's exhausting, mm. by the way, because you're always looking ahead going, yeah. how can I anticipate worst case scenario? Sure. And if I can anticipate it, I can get ahead of it. It will not happen. And then one day, inevitably, you will make a big mistake. And yeah. for the perfectionist, it's crushing. Yeah. And you have to learn. I think one of the greatest things a parent can teach a kid is how to make a mistake. Yes. And how when they make the mistake and they come back to you and go, oops, I made a mistake. You don't freak out. Yeah. You say to them, this is how this is life. Mm. Like, it's going to be OK. That, too, is another source of shame is if you were a kid and you made a mistake in your family and you went back and said, I made a mistake. And your parents just went ballistic. Mm. Well, what does that tell you? Like, no, we don't make mistakes in this family. And somehow, as a kid, you were supposed to anticipate right. every mistake you could make, right. um, which you can't. Mm. So I remember—I think it was the CEO of, of course, uh, I, I can't remember which company. If you, I maybe it was Spanx, something, something that's probably not appropriate to talk about. But anyway, she built this big uh, empire, and but she said the greatest lesson her parents ever taught her was to learn how to make a mistake, mm. and that was absolutely crucial to her being able to start a business and run a business because she knew she was going to make mistakes and that wasn't scary to her. Right. Um, so I think the greater than human ends up in the same dilemma, which is you just get tired. You can't keep it up. Yeah. You will make mistakes because you are human and you cannot outthink everything. Right. Uh, and then the other side of that is, that you go to the, well, if I, if I'm unworthy, then I might as well just go ahead and check out. Mm. I think that speaks to, you know, well, we could get into like family roles and family systems and that gets all a whole other, we could go down a whole other rabbit hole, but there's many times, you know, what we refer to as the black sheep in the family, Mm. for example, who's playing the role of this is the kid who's the screw up, always getting in trouble, doesn't fit the mold somehow is out of the family system and the family system points to that person and says, well, you're the problem. Mm -hmm. We're not the problem. You're the problem. And that becomes their identity. And therefore, and often it's the black sheep of the family that just says, well, if you already think I'm a total screw up, I will be a total screw up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to go over here and give up. Like I'm, I'm not going to try because you see that there's nothing, there's no way I can even get back to the middle. Yeah. And so that's the black sheep where you just, there's that feeling, I think, of like, well, my life's not even worth anything anyway. Mm. So what does it matter? I could disappear tomorrow. Nobody would care. Yeah. Um, but that's, that become, can become, I think, a permanent victim mentality where you get stuck over in the other side of I am not worthy and therefore I'm not even going to try to get out of this. Mm. Um, so either way, the point is it's a false yeah it's not fully human because the victim mentality is false you can make changes there Mm. is always possibility for change and improvement Uh, maybe the black sheep identity well that's not even really an identity that came from somebody else right so you can pull yourself back to the human and perfectionism you can too Uh, but you've got to let yourself be able to fail yeah I was thinking how ironic it was Scott that you said that and this is true. I guess it just hit me just now that exposure is the only way we can overcome toxic shame and yet it was exposure that planted the toxic shame seed in the first place. Right. So I think the distinction is it has to be safe exposure. Like but that is so what a challenge, right, to come back from when you're exposed in a way that is detrimental and and hurtful mm. to then you know, get the courage to say, I will allow myself to be exposed again. Mm. But the point is you have to do it in an environment in which you're not going to be shamed. Yeah. We're always talking about that. Like you have to be very careful knowing the wound was exposure in the first place. Yeah. You can't just go expose yourself anywhere. Yeah. You've got to pick a safe space or there's counseling or group or whatever it might be uh, in order, but how it is ironic that the thing that was the problem is the thing that is the solution as mm. well.
0: I think that's. Um, I really appreciate you saying. And I think that um, for anybody that's listening, I they may identify with my um, journey of of within a week swinging between those two polarities because I find that as I as I shift into perfectionism, if it doesn't go well and it and and I can't get it done, then I can quickly just be like, okay, well then I'm obviously worthless. And then you're like, no, I'm going to fix it, and so you go and try to fix it again. So it sometimes it may not even be that you develop this you know, either you're one or the other, it can maybe even happen within, within a week where you're pursuing that perfectionism unconsciously. And all this is unconscious. I think that's also a big part of the exposure part is, um, I've gotten the process now, maybe this will help some listeners where I'll journal, I'll, I'll put a piece of paper and I'll, I'll draw a line down the middle on the left side. I'll, I'll call it ego, false self. You want to say, I'll just let it rip. What do you got to say about what's happening right now about me? And it is awful. And then over there, I'm like, then I'll pray and say, okay, what you know, guide me, and what what is this true, et cetera. Like that is it's is it true? Is such a powerful question because it's not about is it right or wrong, is it positive or negative, is it true or false? And that's a whole nother ball game. And I I just feel like um, that always helps me because very rarely, if ever, is it correct about what's actually happening. And then it's always about that self hatred. You can see it, and it's so palpable. But sometimes it does take that exposure. Of putting it on paper before you even share it with someone to say, "Wow, I can't believe this is embarrassing that this is going on in my head," but it is, and it's nice to see it on in the ink to say, "Wow, okay, like I'm there." There's some healing that needs to happen here, and but you can't know it until you expose it to yourself first. Maybe that's even a uh, a bridge before you can mm-hmm. start opening up because sometimes it's hard to articulate you know, what you're experiencing until you really get a handle, like you said earlier, on the awareness of that voice.
1: Yeah, I mean, trans- awareness is the beginning of transformation. Yeah. You know what is ironic if you read Bradshaw's book? He opens it with that God created shame mm. to be very helpful. Wow. Very needed, Because it it, it, sh- it lets me know I have limitations. Wow. The, and, um, but in a deeper way, it's like, you're not God, mm. you know, and, and so, so take that incredible pressure off yourself. Because yes. remember when they hide after the snake, you know, and God says, who told you you were naked?
0: Wow. You
1: know, who accused you? you wow. know? And then what do they do? They hide. Mm. The false self is the total place of hiding. Mm. You know, there, I think we need to look at there's, I think, four foundational systems where we learn shame, mm. especially toxic, like Sarah said, the first is our biological family, then our educational systems, spiritual systems, and then just uh, our vocational work mm. in all those places, uh, most of them work we we develop a shameful, and I think we go back to what is the center of a human condition, mm. and it is the desire to be loved. Mm. That means more to a human being than anything else. And that's expressed in different ways. You know, I, I feel I have purpose, I have meaning, I'm good, I'm, you know. And toxic shame, shame disrupts that. And I, I like how Bradshaw actually says it ruptures the self. Mm. Um, and then Thompson says in his book, On the Soul of Shame, it disintegrates us. Mm. You know, all that we can be and in the disbelief that, that I'm capable of receiving that desire, that love, Mm. um, without running to a false self. Wow. Because that's that's what I come to believe. If if I'm exposed, you will reject me. Mm. You'll find that I'm not lovable. Mm. And so it just strengthens. And I like how Sarah and I love Parker Palmer, Mm. but the one article I, I read that he wrote about his battle with depression, his breakthrough was when somebody told him not to look at depression as the enemy. Mm. Could it be a gift that's pressing you back down to your true self? Wow. And that was the beginning of him getting well.
2: Wow. Yeah. His book is amazing. That's another one to, to read, Let Your Life Speak, by mm. Parker Palmer. Um, because, yes, what he talks about is the, the reason his depression kicked in mostly was because he felt all his life he was trying to to basically fit a square peg in a, in a round hole. Like he was doing all the things he thought he should do, Mm. not the things that he was truly called to do. Mm. And then the depression of essentially feeling worn out and, and angry of sort of battling against his true self. Mm. That was, that was what happened. Yeah. And I, so I, I do think the, but, and going back to your point, um, Jake, about the, Being able to live in both false selves at the same time is actually also very true, Mm. um, because that was also my pattern as well. Like the perfectionism was so exhausting that then in behind the scenes, now I would never like expose that part. But behind the scenes, I was acting out in the other direction of Mm. the lesser than human, Mm. doing you know doing the behaviors that could kind of what to me could relieve the stress of being so perfect. And yet then I would feel the shame of being not perfect and come circle right back around to perfection. And so, yeah, it was like reinforcing itself Mm. in its in this own system instead of being, as Scott said, fully integrated and just saying, you know, this is I'm I am both like I have the ability to make bad decisions in me and I also have the ability to be. Uh, you know, at our best days, an exceptional self. But, you know, most days I'm living squarely in the middle. Yeah. (laughs) I
0: I appreciate you saying that, too, because I I have found that it's intoxicating. If we're honest, it's intoxicating to move into that perfectionism. It's intoxicating to get that book that talks about. um, And I want to shift a little bit, Scott, back to your part about uh, I, I have in my own experience, I'm speaking for myself, spirituality is, has become the only antidote to any of this. And I am a self-professed, I have read every self-help book you can imagine. I have Tony Robbins, myself to death. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with any of that. Sure. And, and, and that's a part of the journey. But when it comes to, there's nothing more intoxicating than waiting on that book in the mail. You get the book in the mail. you got the seven steps to live the life that you want to live, or the ten steps, or how many steps it's going to take. That's intoxicating because finally you're like, this is the answer. This book is going to do it. And I would read the book and I would get the end of it. I was always had this fear of finishing the book because I was like, oh, God, you know, like it's it's over because it's intoxicating. I'm underlining and I'm doing all that kind of stuff. And then I'm like the, the book ends and it's just me sitting there again. And I'm like, OK, so now I've got to do these things and I would do them. And some of it would work. Some of it wouldn't. And then eventually it would still come back to the point of it, it just didn't didn't scratch the itch. And I think that through my own spiritual process, which is still very much evolving, is it is that surrender and that nature to say, "I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I give up, not the victim side of it, but I give up, and I'm grateful I am so grateful to give up like it's moving in that gratitude and, and a little bit of. Something I've been doing lately is is shifting the word faith to willingness because faith is loaded for me growing up it's like have faith you know have faith and all that kind of stuff. So for me a lot of times my prayers are I'm opening I'm opening some willingness to to to, to be willing to be wrong about these thoughts that are happening or or all this kind of stuff and and there's there's certain amount of gratitude when it does when you move into the spiritual world where you, you, you do get to release that immense pressure that this is all up to me because the, the false self is the separated self. It's, false it's self alone.
1: That, the false self is driven by the ego. Yes. The spiritual self is driven by a power greater than myself, the yes. grace
0: of yeah. God. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think as we close out, I think that is such an integral part that I wish I don't I don't I don't want to say that at all at it all. It's perfect timing and etc. But if there's anybody out there that's like me that has that experience of that intoxication of I'm going to fix this because I'm going to pull my bootstraps up or it's just it's just this book that or this system that I'm not putting into play. How spirituality is really the balm that goes in and just rubs that gently out of you, and and you're not worried as much about trying to overcome and trying to be perfectionist. You're just okay with being who you are.
1: Yes. I was thinking that, that so many people, including myself, have struggled with depression mm. in our life. At the core of my depression was toxic shame. Mm. And what we know about depression is it's anger turned inward. Mm. I like to use the word resentment. Mm. So when I start to resent who I am with all my weaknesses and flaws and mistakes, you know, I reject myself myself. And that leads to depression. And the only antidote for that is to be in an environment, which Sarah was talking about, where there's empathy, mm-hmm. compassion, kindness, gentleness, which you get in a small group, which mm-hmm. is really the heart of our ministry. Mm-hmm. You are embraced by that mm-hmm. as I'm exposed. Now it heals. Um, I, can't, I think it was Roar that, that wrote about and like it was like in an AA meeting where you experience that where the, the person steps up to to talk for the first time and, and their trembling voice says, mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Joe, I'm I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And he says you can just feel the entire group, the meeting, embrace that like, oh, mm-hmm. we take your shame. Mm-hmm. You know, we love you. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that is what transforms our lives. Mm-hmm. So, Brene Brown says, wherever you can find those communities, those groups, she says, sprint, mm-hmm. run to them, mm-hmm. you know. They're hard to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think in our society, which is really the motivation of our, our work that we do, is only people who've been at the far extreme, they end up at the AANASA, you know, they, they embrace that, are embraced by that. We try to make that for everyone, Yes, because we know that we're all out there struggling with yes. that. And it is so systemic mm. in our society. Mm. But there's no greater p- power in the universe than that grace mm. with that message, which is a message of universality. You're not alone.
0: Yes. You know? Mm. Yes.
1: And and I think, the, I and I believe with everything in me, the more I grow in my spiritual life, it's I'm just emptying out all them toxic messages and just how I have, have bought into that systemic message mm. that I'm not enough. Mm. You know, and... Um, I don't know. And there's a fear to that, Mm. you know, because what I'm so afraid of is you will abandon me, Mm. you know. And when I finally share my truth, like we, Sarah and I, we still have these meetings every Friday forever, and nobody runs away but to Mm. actually move towards me. It's life-changing. It's life-saving. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. it's beautiful. Mm. I do think that, so I, I looked up the definition of, Mercy, just recently and was reminded it's the unmerited love of God. Mm. Unmerited. That's the key word. So that's, I think, what we, when you experience grace from another person, that's exactly what that is too. That's how we mimic God is where I'm giving you love that's unmerited. You did not earn it. You don't have to earn it. Mm. Just by being, you get it. That's what parents are supposed to give their kids to say, Just because you're here, Mm. I love you. Mm. Not because you're performing for me, not Mm. because you are, I'm molding and shaping you into the person Mm. I think you should be, just because you're here. Mm. And that's, I think we forget that's how God sees us. Right. Just because you're here, I love you. That's what we have to come back to so hard to find that in our humanity, that unmerited love. But Mm. that is essentially what we have to offer each other and ourselves in order to heal. And I think when we go back to the definition of true shame, like healthy shame, it is the recognition that I'm limited. I only, as a one person, have so many gifts and talents and abilities, uh, and I I can use them, but I'm still limited. But Mm. then that toxic shame message is, I'm forever stunted, I'm forever limited. This is, not only do I not have capacity to, to do much in life or um you know i essentially if i, I I'm always gonna bump up against yeah. like this inability or irresponsibility or or my my flaws and and all of that, but I think spirituality, when we let God enter mm. with us. It and and release that toxic shame. What we find is, and I think this is the true antidote, is creativity. Mm. We we start to realize that yes, I am limited, mm. but God is not. Mm. God's creative input into my life, and that's where I've come to in my in my own life. When I am out of ideas, mm. well, this is my problem. So yeah. I, w- I wait till I'm out of ideas, and yeah. then I'm like, Hey God, right. you got anything for me? Mm-hmm. But I should probably do it the other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it, you know it's it's sort of to become a conduit of God's endless ability to see beyond this moment mm. to be creative to think through new solutions to find new ways new pathways i do believe that if we rely on God in that way uh, we will it'll just sort of come to us yes. if we could just release like let go of trying to control the outcome mm. we'll actually find that god goes here's a hundred different outcomes,
0: yes. go for it. You know? One you never would have thought. <laughs> yes. It's like that, those miracles come because it's something you know that you never could have put that together. You yes. never could have put that scenario where everybody comes away with love and grace and everything. Right. You're like, wow. But you can't, you know, it's like as you're trying to push yourself to get there and you get more, it's like the more anxiety raises, the more the the clamp comes down. You're like, yes. I got to fix this. So that's the hardest part is when you're moving through something that seems like it's chaotic the very last thing you want to do is let go is that seems to be the hardest. And I was um, talking about this yesterday um, at a, at a church service where I, w- I went um, to visit my grandmother's grave recently. Cause she was just my, I still consider her a guardian angel, her and my grandfather were just, they were there to show unconditional love to me when I was a young child. And I noticed this um, statue in the graveyard and it was uh, the picture of uh, Jesus and the woman, uh, at the well, and I knew the story, but I was like, I was looking at her uh, face in the statue, and she was she looked she looked like her face was going downward, almost like she was in shame or something. Something was happening to her that she felt shame, um, and I was like, man, what did Jesus say to this poor woman that has made her feel this way? And I read the verse, and and I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not a pastor, but essentially he's talking about eternal life, and this what we're talking about that. You know, you, there's something I can give you that's within that is everlasting and it never ends, never runs out as you come and You're thirsty. I have a different kind of life. And he's getting her really excited about this. And she's like, wonderful. And so she's all in. And then all of a sudden he says, well, you should go tell your husband about it. And all of a sudden, I think that may have been when they took the statue because she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You have five. And also the guy you're living with is not your husband. And so I think I think what's beautiful about that is he's saying, can we talk about this? Can, can we spotlight your guilt and your shame so I can exchange it? I can give you something else. But I can't give you this water until you're willing to maybe release this. And I just saw it in this whole new way. And I think that, you know, for anybody out there that's struggling with it, um, you, you don't have to do this alone. In fact, you can't. And it is that relinquishment into that um, spirituality. I'm just so thankful you said that because the easy The easy pull of the ego is to uh, go out and get a new program or something else to improve yourself and um, it, it can work for the short term, but it never really scratches that itch. So, well, thank you guys so much. And if you're out there and you're listening and uh, any of this feels relatable, which it all does because we're all human, uh, you're not alone. You really are not alone. We would love to have you guys a part of this in, a, in an upcoming small group. You will be loved and taken care of, and it's a very safe atmosphere. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Restore Small Groups is a nonprofit based in Nashville, Tennessee. To find out more, visit us online at RestoreSmallGroups.org.